Hey, John. How are hey. you doing? Hey, Ben. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. I have a super, super interesting person that um, is going to be on the show with us today. Okay. And his name's Courtney, and he taught English in China. He successfully sued Trump, so that's going to be fun to dig into. Can't wait. Loves loves cooking. Like this is gonna be a very he's a recruiter now for Amazon and Facebook, all those, you know, crazy huge corporation companies. So this is gonna be super interesting. There's gonna be tons to talk about. That's exciting. I'm I'm yes. I'm like chomping at the bit, ready to go. <laughs> I know, me too. I'm I'm really excited. Again, sorry it's late. Uh it's just he's in California. So um, but that's okay. This is gonna be awesome. This one I'm pretty sure is gonna run a little long um, because there's so much to talk about. So viewer, the three viewers watching, I'm, I'm sorry, but I <laughs> promise you're going to want to hear a lot of this. It's super interesting. So if you make it 10 minutes in, come back for the, for the rest of it. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. This is, this is going to be, this is going to be a good one. So we have an awesome guest today, Courtney. I already forgot how to pronounce your name, but <laughs> Baudre. <laughs> That's what I thought it was. I just didn't want to mess it up. And of course, yeah. <laughs> I am joined with the famous John Corrigan. Hello. Who isn't famous, but he's yeah, famous they're... to the four viewers we will have. Um, yes. Four. This is going to go viral. So, Courtney, you and I, I went back. I, I did some, some stalking on Facebook. We've mm -hmm. been friends since 2013. How crazy yes. is that? I know. I, it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah. And um, I knew, I knew that it was quite a while ago, like when you were in China and doing all that. I didn't realize it was nine years already. I know. It's crazy. Time flies. <laughs> but yeah, um, but we have so many awesome things to talk about today, um, and hopefully we fit all this in. But I really wanted to jump into something that's always been interesting to me, and I know based on what I talk to John about, we're both interested in talking about is your time teaching English in China. Mm -hmm. So how, how did that happen? How, why did you like, what motivated you to do that? Um, like, how did that all happen? Yeah, uh, I mean, honestly, a lot of my life, including that part of my life was a, a series of uh, universal events coming together at the right time and place. Um, essentially, what happened was I was working for a uh, financial company here in Los Angeles. And uh, back then, I was still young and fresh and had all these grand ideas of trying to make my way in corporate America up the ladder and all that. And um, my, I worked hard, harder than anyone else on my team, got promoted like three times within the first nine months I was there. And then um, all my dreams came crashing, uh, crashing down when uh, FBI and uh, the SEC busted through the door at 6 a.m. and told everyone to back away from the computers and don't touch anything. Wow. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> wow. That, that's, that's a story in and of itself. I, I, I keep telling myself I need to sit down and write it because it needs to be a Netflix, like, either documentary yeah. or special I would, because... I would watch yeah. that. I would watch <laughs> that. The things that happened at this company, and now that I'm older and I have I have a little bit of a retrospection um, to look back on, I can see now how that that company was a fraud. But at the time, you couldn't see it. We were, you know, going out every day. Uh, it's like the Four Seasons, and we were uh, the company was paying for. Whenever we would go out as a team on the weekends, the company was sending us a town car and a limo. We had uh, we had bottle service at every club we went to, and I just kept thinking the company loves us so much they just pay for everything. But basically, <laughs> it was a it was a, it was a money laundering racket uh, that was going on uh, at Holy the highest shit. level. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I have goosebumps thinking about this. Netflix I know, show, man. Yeah, you got we <laughs> crashed. You could be the next we crashed, you know. That, that honestly, cool. that's what it was like. <laughs> and the people, I, it, it was just absolutely crazy. So that's what it was the catalyst. So once that happened, um, we uh, 
my sort of department, because it wasn't the whole company, it was actually just this one new department, this one new product line that they had started. And we were always kept separate from everyone else in the company too. And there was a sort of inter-rivalry between us and other people, the people upstairs, we were downstairs. The people upstairs hated us for some reason, and in turn, we hated them. Um, and <laughs> so it was, it, but no one knew exactly what the real tension was, but uh, that's, you know, it came out to be what it was. But um, so once our department was sort of closed down because, uh, you know, it was fake the entire time, um, we were given the option to transfer to the other teams that were upstairs that already hated us for the past year. Um, and I was lead, I was the uh, assistant manager at the time of my uh, department. And I felt this, my manager decided to leave, um, obviously, because she was uh, a part of the scam. But um, I felt that I didn't want to leave my team there by themselves. So I decided to go up and transfer to this new department with them. And after a week, I just couldn't do it. My heart was just not in it. I felt like this was like, this is not me. This is not what I want to do. So I quit my job. Uh, one morning I just woke up and I was like, no, I'm not doing this. I quit and spent the next three months just meditating on a rock in Santa Monica. I would just wake up at like 9 a.m., go to Starbucks, go to Malibu, sit on this rock that I named Henry and just sit there and meditate. Because I was like trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life now. Like my whole hopes and dreams are just like, you know, just crashed. And then I just heard this sort of whisper in the wind and it was like, travel, travel travel and i'm like okay maybe i should go travel and i ended up watching some documentary uh it was pretty popular back then about this guy who was just traveling sort of non-stop for like a year or two and i said yeah maybe i'll do something like that so um i had the idea to basically start in south america um well central america then south america sort of make my way around um but uh that didn't turn out to to be the original place that i planned to go to there were some things that happened logistics wise that didn't work out and i'm like well maybe i'm trying to plan too much maybe i just need to just be spontaneous so i just i got a map and i threw a dart at it and it landed in asia and i'm like okay i guess i'm gonna go to china so uh, i go to the airport to, to go to china i pack up all my stuff gave my keys to my landlord i said i'm out um, I had a car that I hadn't even finished paying off at the time, and I just left it somewhere. Um, and I went to the airport <laughs> and um, and uh, went to go buy a ticket to China and come to find out I needed a visa. Had no idea. <laughs> so I went back Man. to my uh, I went and stayed with some friends for the next couple of days while I got this rush visa uh, to go to China. So I ended up in China. Plan was to stay there just uh, uh, a few months and then make my way to other Asian countries and then eventually the Middle East and then Europe. But uh, as soon as I got to China, I just, it was, I was just enthralled with everything. It was, it was this weird sort of place that didn't make sense, but everyone was, was a part of it. And then I was treated very differently there because they had never seen, at least the place where I was at, had never seen black people before. So everyone was just like looking at me like, so th like the younger people looked at me like I was like Kobe Bryant, like, oh, <laughs> like, or something like, like, it was almost kind of superstar. The older people looked at me like I was just like an alien. And it was just very weird, but then the food was so good. And, and basically, long story short, I uh, ended up finding some, uh, this guy there who uh, could speak English. Because at the time, I couldn't find anyone that spoke a lot of English in that little area. And um, he had told me about this idea to open up an English school um, and that he needed an English teacher and uh, that, it could be very lucrative and be fun. And I was like, hey, why not? Like, just go with the flow and just see what happens. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much how that began. We uh, went and got the licensing and then found the place and then got someone to decorate it. And then I would go out to the primary schools uh, every afternoon uh, and hand out a business card that was in Chinese that had my name on it. And I would carry my passport with me. And the reason is because I would have to prove to them that I was American um, because if they thought I was uh, African, yeah. which was their thought, they would think that the English quality wasn't good for whatever reason. They had this, there was this distinction in their mind back then that Black equaled African and African um, education was not as good. So whenever I would hand out my card, I would like show my passport, like, you see, USA. And, uh, and <laughs> it was really crazy, but that's how we started building the school and um, it just went from there. Yeah, and I remember years ago um, when you had told me um about how you were in china and stuff you said that people would like come up to you like you were a celebrity mm -hmm. yeah and, no, that, <laughs> yeah 
No, how many how many autographs did you sign as Kobe Bryant when you were there? <laughs> you had to put a number on it. Just to... well, I, I couldn't say Kobe Bryant. I did sign my name. To, so whenever I would, so I had my school, and then uh, during the day, there were these other schools I would partner with, and I would come in and teach like an English class, like on Monday and Tuesday, for example. And whenever I went to those classes, for the older students in middle school, I would always, they, the very first semester of every term, the, after every class, I would spend 10 minutes writing my signature on pieces of paper, um, like my name, because they thought it was like, it meant something, which again, I, I, I had to sort of like tell myself, okay, imagine if you never, you've only seen this type of person on TV, never in real life. That's how it is for them. Um, Cause it's a very monolithic culture. Not yeah. only were there not that many, you know, it was mostly Chinese people, uh, but the only foreigners they may would have seen, may have seen, uh, would have probably been a white person because uh, they mm-hmm. some uh, European countries do business in the city. So they may have seen a white person before, but a black person never. Like yeah. that was just like <laughs> shocking to them. Um, so yeah, it was- And it was you like, wrote it, you wrote it in English, right? You wrote your name in English? Yeah. So that yeah, was something it, novel, I bet too, because they don't see that every yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. They would always ask me why, because I I do sign my my name very uniquely. Um, mm. So it, it's in cursive, which they don't understand because they don't learn cursive in English, which I guess we kind of don't anymore in American <laughs> either out here. But uh, so when I signed it in cursive. Uh, I was like, yeah, this is our version of like your special Chinese writing. We write it this way because it's like traditional or whatever. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> so and, cool. and while you were there, you learned Mandarin, correct? Oh yeah. It was, I was not by choice. So what happened was I was trying to, I, I was one of those people who thought that Mandarin was so difficult because you, obviously you don't have like the the Roman or Latin characters, like the letters, I mean, uh, to make it make sense as if it was like Spanish or French or something. So I just thought mm-hmm. it was going to be so difficult that I was never going to be able to learn it. But honestly, because I was in this small town, it wasn't a big town like Beijing or Shanghai where you do have more foreigners. Um, I was the only foreigner for like at least I would say comfortably 75 kilometers. Um, and so it I, essentially what happened was my brain sort of turned into a baby's brain. And I, now I can understand how babies learn language because literally people would say things and some things would stick to my head and other things would not. And then the more I heard it, the more I started to recognize that this sound <laughs> means this. If I say this, they give me water. If I say this, they smile. If I say this, they give me a phone. Um, so these sounds started staying in my head and then I started having dreams in Chinese that I didn't know if it was real or not. And then eventually I just started trying to practice and I would say, um, oh, I was like, uh, do you have water here? And then they were like, what are you talking about? Like, that's what they, their look they would give me. And I was like, me, uh, shui, and like, that was water. And then there's a, oh, and I was like, ah, yes, water, I want water. And then just slowly, step by step, I started figuring out the, the words for certain things. And then I sat down and tried to figure out the, uh, the sentence structure. And then once I figured that out, honestly, the first six months was just like, like just uh, uh, information download. My brain started picking up very, very quickly um all all these different things because i would see it and i would do it and i would touch it and then my brain just put it together it was very strange i can't even explain it to people it felt like my brain had like uh, this dictionary but like they were it was two dictionaries and somehow they became one um so it just sort yeah, of happened naturally yeah and plus you were kind of forced to learn it to a point right because um i mean not a lot of people in china know english Right, exactly. Like just to survive, I had to sort of learn because otherwise I would have to use my phone to translate. And the problem is sometimes I would be in areas where I didn't have good service or reception, so I wouldn't be able to yeah. translate. And then I, there were a couple other things that started happening where I realized I needed to be able to speak up for myself because mm. I started getting taken advantage of um, by certain people. Mm. Um, so there's a yeah, sort of a notion... <laughs> well, no. yeah, cab driver, that, 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 that's the least of your worries. Oh. I'm talking about a situation where you've made friends with someone that you met at the park, um, let's say in the morning playing volleyball, mm-hmm. um, who speaks a little bit of English, but not that much. You, go, you both just have, know enough to get by with each other. And he invites you for tea 
um, at his office and you come there and then you realize that when you go into his office, there's like 10 other people there in this conference room and then they sit you down and then they say, okay, ready? And then they turn on this video conference with some team in Germany and um, they start talking about this product that they're working on together to be built. And you're sitting there like, I thought I was here for tea. And then oh you slowly God. start to realize, you slowly start to realize that, oh, they brought me here to make their company look more international by having a foreign person as like an employee. Like that's the look they were trying to project. China's all and about es- looks. And <laughs> especially so, having, especially having a black person in China, like right, you were that, like that the token for form. them. The, yeah, right. yeah, they're super <laughs> international over there. Yeah, and, and not even <laughs> an American. Like even that, that part was even just like you know because it, 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 in China we have this thing called mianza or like face, to give face. So this gives them face by, it makes them look more legitimate because they have a foreigner who allegedly works there. Um, it's the oh, same okay. way, for example, um, my, our, our English school was better than other people's English schools because I gave my school credibility because I am an American teacher, whereas the other English schools in the city only had Chinese teachers. So if you're trying to learn English, which school do you think is more credible that you would be able to better learn from, especially when it comes to accent reduction and things like that? Obviously, the one that has an American teacher. So China is all about face. Everything in the culture is about giving face and make sure you don't lose face. So there were multiple instances like that where I would be invited places. I remember another instance where, again, another person I met um, at the park. I used to go to the park every morning. And this is when I started exercising more in the morning because it, it made me, I had this like depression that I got in the beginning. Uh, this culture shock and then wanting to go home and I found these people playing volleyball in the morning and I would just go and play with them just to make myself feel better and I started making friends with them and I met this other person who said oh let's go to the go hiking this weekend and I had my a dog at the time I'm like okay cool that'll be great for my dog I he picked me up and we I remember driving up a mountain and I noticed that he wasn't wearing like hiking clothes. He was just wearing normal clothes. I was wearing hiking clothes, I had my dog with me. I remember driving up a mountain, down a mountain. We get to some industrial park and he says, okay, I'll get out. And I'm like, okay, we, I opened the door and I'm like, where are we going? Like, and it's just, it basically, imagine like this oversized Lowe's or Home Depot, but like outside, a bunch of different home improvement stuff. I see toilets, I see showers, I see walls, I see paint. And I'm like, what the fuck are we doing here? So then yeah. I, I I follow him inside and then I see some people that know him like, oh, hey, <laughs> and he says, this is, I, I, at this point, I know a little bit of Chinese. I hear him say, this is my American friend, Courtney. And then they all get excited. They start talking and they say, oh, over here. And they, 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 position me they have me stand next to this toilet and they say oh say cheese and then they take a picture of me next to the toilet and they say oh over here and they move me next to a shower and they say say cheese and they take a picture of me next to the shower basically i was a model for them for the day i was like free advertisement that they were going to post in their social media um so so after the second because again, if a foreigner is 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 advertising it, it gives them more credibility. Chinese products yeah. that are made in China for like for Chinese people, domestically made products are not actually that good quality. Although yeah, we get good quality stuff from China mm-hmm. because we have quality assurance people who go over there to ensure that the quality is good. The products that are made for Chinese people are usually not that good quality. I mean, I can't Plus, tell you how many times I bought a broom. <laughs> like, yeah, trust me. We have we have the money to make it good quality, right? Too. Right, and exactly, um, but yeah, as as you know, I'm a game developer, and so I deal mm-hmm. with manufacturers a lot over there. And um, now I'm the U.S. sales consultant for one of them, and they asked for a photo of me to put on their social media mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, oh, and now were, I know why. <laughs> you were the model too. You were a model. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Know it. Yeah. What about the Um, dog? Did they take pictures of the dog too, or did he? Well, I was that. That was the weirdest part. Again, I I I kept telling myself like, if this is what you, because this is another thing about Chinese culture, they never say anything directly. It's always indirect. They beat around the bush. And I I quickly started learning my first six months there that this is their communication style. That one, they call everyone their friend, even though they don't know nothing about them. Two, that they speak indirectly. Um. So I have my dog with me, and like again, the whole day I just I'm just getting drove. 
driven around and I can't, I don't know enough Chinese to be like, what are we, like, I thought we were going hiking. We end up going to lunch and I go into the restaurant with my dog, just like on a leash and then eventually we go home. And I'm like, well, what, what was the point of like, it was, it was just crazy to me. Like, yeah, they so, could have just told yeah, you up like, front. exactly exactly but that's not how it works and china you do see it in, but the thing about it is is that now that i did that for him that means he has to do something for me it, it, there's a give and take in a relationship you and you have to build relationships with people now i will say i eventually once i learned this i used it to my advantage um a few times because again that once you establish a relationship with someone you you make friends based on what they can do for you not because you know, you just love hanging around with each other. That's not how Chinese relationships work. It's based on how can we both benefit each other and what will you be able to do for me in the future and what will I be able to do for you? Unfortunately, that's what I learned about yeah. most Chinese friendships. Yeah. Just their culture over there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. That was super interesting. That was a lot. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but not to... <laughs> I could probably talk to you about that for hours, um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, <laughs> I, I want to talk to you about some of the other things that you've done, which are extremely impressive and interesting and something that I think John and I are super excited about. I'm excited about it. Um, I think it's awesome. Um, but you successfully sued Trump. Let's talk about oh, yeah. that for a minute um, oh, yeah. for, you know, the um, forcing, you know, foreigner spouses out and all of that. Um, and your I, I forgot your husband's name is Amadi or um, Amadi. OK. Um, yeah. And so I have a few like questions about this okay. whole situation. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah first of too. all too. yeah like um <laughs> obviously this is a very like before the lawsuit that must have been insane um to deal with that that's a huge life changing thing multiple households now so where um where is he at right now uh, now he's actually at the gym <laughs> down the street. He's here. We're together. Oh, okay. So, great. Yeah. <laughs> so happy ending. So there's a happy yeah. ending to this. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Eventually. Yeah. yeah. Where, I can breathe where, easy now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where was he when he was forced out? Like, where'd he go? Oh, well, he wasn't forced out. He was, he couldn't come. Um, so we were both, we met in China. So he was there studying and doing his dissertation. Wait, at the park? About, was this at the park? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we met, I think it was my second to last year in China. I was getting ready to like, I felt that my time was sort of winding down. And then right before I made the decision to leave, we happened to, uh, to meet. Uh, I think that was at the end of 2017, so, I think. It's a good thing you listened to the universe because you met your husband on that trip. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's and that's exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. Um, that's why I always, I always tell people, you just have to like, when you have this feeling that you need to do something more than likely like there's a reason for it and you have to listen because yeah it could that, be your, that, your yeah. special someone could be waiting for yep. you wherever that's at 100 that's, that's yeah yeah and you you guys have been married for a few years now right yeah exactly that's yeah that's awesome so yeah the reason i said the forced out thing is um because i know a lot of people's spouses were and so i wasn't sure if that was your situation or not but um yeah, that must have obviously that sucked. Um, so how did how did that turn? I know it was you and how many people was it? Four hundred. Three hundred so? of us total. Yeah. Oh, okay. And how did that manifest? Like um, that right. whole yeah. So if you're familiar, um, well, I guess I'll go back a little bit. So my husband and I we met in 2017 in like December uh, Christmas Eve. December 2017, and then uh, 2017. And then we actually got married July 15, 2018, um, through this service um, in Washington, D.C. So we got a marriage license from Washington, D.C. Um, and we got married, had a wedding in China at one of our bars. There's a foreign bar that a lot of foreigners go to. Um, we got married there. I then proceeded awesome. to file for a spousal visa for him to come to America um, and for us to start our life here. 
I then went through the process with the embassy only to find out that technically, while we have a, a marriage license and it's registered in the <laughs> District of Columbia, it's not actually legal because we were not physically there, even oh, though the God. person who runs the service told us that it was actually legal. So at that That's point, I started, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So now it's like December of 2018 and now I'm trying to figure out, okay, how, what are we going to do? Because at this point, it's either he gets a tourist visa, comes to America and we, you know, basically lie about why he's entering the country, um, which is for us to get married, or we find another place to get married uh, and then try the spousal visa again. So we attempted to apply to Denmark because at this point we we had to find a country that, because his home country is Senegal. They don't allow gay marriage there either. China doesn't recognize it. So he can't come to America. Mm-hmm. So I have to find a country where we both can go to um, that allows gay marriage for us to get married there. So I tried Denmark, that didn't work. Try um, uh, New Zealand, that didn't work. Try Australia, tried a bunch of places. And then eventually I'm like, this isn't working. It looks like we need to do the 90 day fiance visa thing, which is like, you know, from the TV <laughs> yeah. show. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> but, yeah, but we did Right. But we were avoiding that because it would require me to return back to the States. I had to prove that I had a job in the States and could support him if he came mm. to the States for us to get married, as opposed to yeah. being married initially and just coming to the States together. So after doing that for about six months, I was like, okay, now I have to leave. So this is now uh, August, September of 2019. I leave, come back, I file the paperwork. Normally the process only takes about three to six months. Um, we were approved. Uh, and then January comes, January 2020, uh, we are trying to get him a, an appointment at the embassy to do his interview. Um, and then all of a sudden COVID happened. Um, so oh in China, so, so now, oh my God. yeah, so now he's stuck there. He, the embassies are closed. Everyone's evacuated. There's like this virus going on. Everything's crazy. Um, and now I'm just like, wow, just like, look at our luck. Had, had I left two months before or three months before this, was, yeah. like, it was this whole, like, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda. Um, yeah. and then, so, but what made it worse, um, is that they're, so everyone's on lockdown for pretty much the first three, four months of April, everyone all over the world. But China actually started getting a lot better before everyone else did. And I remember in March and April, uh, my husband would call me and like he was out going to the club, going to the bars, having fun. And like they were, you know, just do, going back to normal. Um, it seemed like while we were still struggling a little bit. But what happened was that made it difficult is that by June, there were some embassies in some countries that did start processing some types of visas. For example, you and the thing, all this is public information. So every month, I would go to the Guangzhou, the Beijing, the Shanghai um, U.S. Embassy websites and pull their data reports to see what visas did they process last month. And I could see that they were processing visas like uh, au pair visas, people who needed nannies to come take care of their children while we're in a pandemic, Mm -hmm. or they were processing entrepreneur or investor visas. And for people to come and put money into the economy, I get it. But Trump made it a lot more difficult because he made a travel ban that said there was an EU Uh, travel ban. Yeah, there was an EU travel ban. There was a China-specific travel ban because of COVID. There was a Brazil-specific travel ban because of COVID. Um, And all those travel bans effectively restricted the uh the embassy's hands for processing our visas so while other countries um i remember at some point uh someplace in the middle east their embassy opened up um after was being shut down and they started processing some visas um but not again processing fiance visas or spousal visas um whenever we would contact them even though china again like i said china was fine at this point they had the COVID under control. Everyone was back to normal. People were working. People were at school. The embassies were obviously up and running, but they were only processing, like I said, au pair, um, entrepreneur, uh, investor visas, visas that, you know, uh, for rich Anything people. Anything that helps the yeah. country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Anything. Right. I just yeah. thought right. that. I was like, this is a very uh, select group right, right a very select group exactly yeah. so and i'm just looking i'm just like this this is wrong like what are they doing and i just started getting frustrated with the process and they kept going back to the travel ban saying that because of the travel ban we cannot process your visa and i'm like the travel mm-hmm. ban says that they can't you cannot uh travel from china to america that doesn't mean that you can't issue his visa he can go to another country for two weeks and mm-hmm. quarantine there and come to america but that's but that's not what they, so but that's how they were interpreting it 
um, there were another, there was another group of plaintiffs, I think there, it was the uh, diversity visa lottery plaintiffs who had been awarded, you know, this one in a million chance to come to America from another country. Um, they won their lottery, they were trying to process their visas and then COVID happened as well and they stopped processing. They were in the middle of a lawsuit with the State Department as well and every time there was a discovery or documents that were released from their lawsuit, I would download them and go through it to see because I wanted to see what the internal communication was between the State Department Department, Trump and the uh, the uh, embassies, and I had noticed in one of the uh, communication K or what they call communique from the State Department to these embassies was that the our visas were to be deprioritized. Any family-based visas were to be deprioritized, even if the country was not affected by a travel ban. So they were purposely mm -hmm. choosing. So Trump and uh, the the Secretary of State um, Pompeo. Um, and the Department of Homeland Security uh, Secretary, I can't remember his name, um, they were all actively, purposely blocking our visas. So once I realized that, I remember going into this, there was a, many different groups, there was this one main group of people, couples who were separated um, from their husbands or their, their wives or their fiancés or family because of these travel bans. And I just posted on there just out of frustration one day, like, you guys, don't you think this is like illegal? Is it, is it just me? Or does it, does it not seem like we have a lawsuit? Like who who wants to get together and sue the government? I feel like we could win. And then there were-, there were <laughs> Yeah, just <laughs> like was, another day, right? Yeah. Just right. sue the law. Right. Yeah, just me. sue the government. No big deal. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And so I got obviously a bunch of like pushback from some people, but there was a group, there was like two or three people who sent me a message directly on Facebook and they're like, you know what? I think you're right. Let's do it. And I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do it. So we then proceeded. I, I forgot what it was called. It was called Operation Something. I can't remember what it was, but we then made this like a group chat on Facebook and we debuted out responsibilities. I was responsible for looking at precedent in the law, looking at the Immigration and Nationality Act looking at different constitutional uh, constitution amendments to see how we could even add that on there. Maybe this would be a violation of our 14th Amendment, et cetera, mm -hmm. looking at case law. Other people were, were responsible for drafting it and all that. So we literally spent about 12 hours a day for the next two weeks drafting our lawsuit until we realized at the very end that if we wanted, we had a choice. We could file this lawsuit for just ourselves, these five people. Mm -hmm or we could do a class action. Our intention was always to do a class oh, yeah. action, but at the end of the two weeks, we realized that the only way we could do a class action by law is that the class has to be uh, adequately and properly represented, meaning that there had to be a lawyer who filed the case. It can't just be a person representing, yeah. you know, all the entire class. Well then, okay, so that threw a wrench in the plan. So then we're like, okay, it's August now. So let's let's uh, let's see if we can go find some lawyers. So I spent the next week calling all these different law firms, trying paying you know their little consultation fees, and I finally found one who wanted to take us on, and he wanted to charge. He said you're going to need a award test of about five hundred thousand dollars. And I'm like, what the? Yeah. Shit. Okay, let me just write you a check. Yeah, let me just get <laughs> yeah. my wallet out real quick. Yeah. Ben's got that. Right. Let me yeah. just write you a check. Sure, no problem. Just get yeah. a small so, loan of a million dollars. You'll that's be all fine. you need. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then wow. we started getting, we started getting a little. Uh, hundred grand. Yeah, yeah. But then I, thought, I started thinking to myself, okay, well, I don't know why it would cost that much money, but um, let, while we have this one person, because I talked to a lot of lawyers who just said it wasn't going to work, they didn't believe in it. He was the mm -hmm. first one to actually say that we could do it. So I'm like, okay, let's put him on the side right now and just think, like, how could we get $500,000? Um, and then, uh, for it to be, so then we ran into a problem because it was going to be a class action, which, which meant that it would affect everyone who was in our situation. And when we would try to speak with people who talked about it and tell them, yeah, please join us so maybe we can split this 500000 amongst all of us, they were like, but it's a class action, right? So if you win, I still benefit from it regardless of if I actually if I join you and pay for it. So oh. they didn't have an incentive, right? <laughs> so then we started getting the ugly side of people. Um, yeah. So so long story short, we ended up meeting this uh, this legal team, uh, Greg Siskin, um, uh, I forgot the other lawyers. Uh, Greg was the main one out of Tennessee, um, and he agreed to do it along with his two other uh, um, uh, buddies from law school. They were they loved filing suits against Trump, so they have filed a few <laughs> over the since he had joined the administration. That's, that's what I'm so uh, yeah, so 
it, it, it also was expensive. I think it came out to, I think it was a thousand dollars per couple. Um, they were not going to do a, a class action. Um, and I think they chose to go that route because they knew doing class action, like I said, people will get the benefit without having to put any skin in the game. So it was about a thousand dollars per couple. We ended up getting uh, 300 couples to join wow. us in total. Um, and uh, we began our journey. I think we filed at the end of August. Um, and then by October, we had we had our hearings and all of us were, we were like, imagine just being on Zoom with people like for like the next three months, people you don't even know, you've never met, but like you are all a part of the same struggle. Mm -hmm. um, that's how it was from August to October of, of 2020. That's what we were doing. We were just on Zoom, having meetings, trying to figure this out, waiting for the, the court hearing, listening to the court hearing, trying to dissect what the what the uh, government uh, lawyer said, what the what the judge said, and then eventually the judge made a, a pre a preliminary ruling and ruled in our favor specifically for people who were affected by the travel ban. He, the judge said that the, that a travel ban on uh, travel is not a ban on visa issuance. Therefore, everyone who, who was not able to get a visa because the embassy was not processing due to the travel ban, they needed to give them their visas uh, post haste. So that quickly mm -hmm. led to, every, to us winning, at least part of us, the ones who were affected by the travel ban. Um, and then he uh, got his visa in January 2021 and uh, was here. As the happy ending. Yeah. Wow. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. That's amazing. That's, yeah. It's, wow. It might not be a Netflix movie, but definitely a mini series. I can see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It documentary yeah yeah but my For my sure. advice to people is not because there are so many people who are afraid to sue the government mm -hmm. and that just just blew my mind the fact that people were afraid to uh to seek redress um you know against the government that that is of them you know i think i, I think trump's uh era in the the white house really uh won uh, made people lose faith in the institutions that we have um, and two, made people think the government was something that it was not, and that it was this all powerful, you know, you can't, uh, you know, can't hold the government accountable. You absolutely can hold the government accountable. The government only works for the people by the people. And because it is made up of people and people sometimes make mistakes and people sometimes do things that they know is, is knowingly is wrong and illegal. And, and the court is how you hold them accountable. So if, if anyone out there is listening, if there's an issue, sue the government. Government. Like, that's what the process <laughs> is for. Yeah. Do not be afraid to sue. Like, yeah, it, most... if, if, if the government does come after you because you sue them, you have another lawsuit because they, yeah. yeah, you're doing something right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah I, th I think people are just intimidated by the idea. Oh, man. You know? oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, everyone yeah. has, there's this stigma where it's like, oh, you won't win against the government because it's the government. And. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that that's kind of cool. So you kind of manifested that huge, like that's a big deal. It is. Yeah, yeah. it's it's crazy it's... when I think about it. Like I I always want to be mindful of the fact that it was I could not have done it by myself. I may have been the one that sort of you know lit the match, but if those other one hundred fifty well three hundred couples did not come together and believe in what we were doing. It would have never happened for me or any of us. And it's so weird now because so many of those couples, because we did the lawsuit, so many of them now have babies that oh, were born amazing. that would that's have never awesome. been born had we not filed the lawsuit. And so it blows my mind every time I see them post a picture. And I'm like, this baby almost didn't come into existence. Yeah. <laughs> like if we had <laughs> Yeah. You and you found the the smoking gun with the uh, the correspondence. Between, oh, I yeah. mean, that's that's a big deal that you were able to see that and put that together for that. Yeah, that's another thing. People have to remember a lot of these things that, that the government is doing as far as communication-wise. Some of it's public information, some of it's not. Um, luckily for me, they were, like I said, another group of people were suing them. So, again, those documents were public. So, and don't be afraid to use your FOIA or Freedom of Information Act um, to get information because it works. I filed so many FOIA requests, I couldn't even uh, count them. But... Um, yeah, hold the government accountable and, at all times. And how, Ben? How how audacious is that of of like the president and the the leadership to put that in writing to say, hey, deny these visas, like not, not like that's to me that's Ridiculous. just that's mind boggling. That's 
fucked up. Is yeah, what it's it terrible. Is. It's yeah. terrible. It really is. Yeah. Like, and, like, and yeah, yeah, that deserves you, a lawsuit at the least. At the, you're 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 hurting families and you're admitting to it through correspondence. You know. Yeah. Here it is. Part. It's <laughs> not even un. It's not a dog whistle. It's just a straight whistle right there. You know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Like it's incredible. <laughs> it's it's sad and incredible. You know? I mean, I think you know now that he's out of office. I think, and we've heard about what happened. I'm not surprised. I mean, he he was yeah. like, flushing documents down the toilet. Yeah, yeah, eating paper, <laughs> yeah. all the all the crazy stories yeah, and, and there's tons of crap going on with him now. Still. Oh yeah, yeah. And oh. um, but yeah, that's super. That's crazy. Like you were meditating, which brought you to teach English, which brought you to meet your husband, which brought you to suing Trump. Like it, <laughs> it's crazy, you know, and yeah. now now you're currently a, a recruiter, right? Um, right. And I, I know you said it earlier, but you're a recruiter for what again? Uh, Fang, uh, which is a Fang. big tech, essentially uh, a big tech company, Fang, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google. Um, sometimes people call it Fang Moolah, which would be Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, uh, Microsoft, Uber, Lyft, and what's the other A? Oh, Airbnb. Wow, that's a yeah. mouthful. And now, yeah. um, <laughs> are you only technical recruiter, or are you do all, all? Are you looking for all positions? I do technical and non-technical, actually. Oh, so awesome. a lot of my positions could be. The vast majority of them are program or product management roles. So it could be a non-tech program manager role, could be a technical program manager role. I do have some software roles, uh, a lot of data scientists, uh, business analyst type roles. Um, yeah. There you go, John. If you you or yeah. I ever need a job, we'll hit up Courtney. For sure. Oh, yeah. I, I've already found him on LinkedIn. So yeah. I'm yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking about that forever, Courtney. You know that I've always, I've always been like, mm, maybe I should take the jump. So, do you do you recruit for any of those specific ones, or just kind of all of them under one umbrella? Uh, I have uh, specific ones I recruit for, but um, because the recruiting community, um, especially now more so than ever, because it's so hard to recruit. Um, because one, you know, we're dealing with this great resignation, right? Where mm -hmm. everyone's quitting their jobs. A lot of people are pivoting into the tech industry um, and a lot of people are doing other things. So recruiting now is going through this metamorphosis where it used to be essentially white women in HR. That, that's mm -hmm. basically what, what recruiting <laughs> used to be. It used to be a part of the HR human resources function that was completely ran by white women essentially. And what happened is when we started trying yeah. to push diversity initiatives and things like that, HR and recruiting split away from each other. While recruiters mm -hmm. who are part of the HR sort of umbrella, we consider recruiting to be talent acquisition and completely separate from human resources. So now we're in the sort of rebranding of ourselves and mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a recruiter? Uh, because if, if most people, if you think of HR, you think of gatekeepers, you think of people who are trying to protect the company, who are trying to do mm -hmm. what's best for the company. Whereas talent acquisition, that's not our goal. While yes, we work for the company, and if they're at the same time, I'm as equally, uh, you know, someone who's trying to do what's beneficial for the company, but as equally, I'm also a candidate advocate. So when I'm going through and I'm having these interviews with candidates or I'm having debriefs with hiring managers or the hiring panel, and I see them say things that I think is fucked up or that mm -hmm. is wrong or they can't see their own biases, I speak up. For example, today, I'm, st I'm still shook, shook about this today. Uh, there was uh -oh. a candidate who everyone thought, like initially the vote for the candidate was, uh, four yeses, one no. And usually when that happens, it's like, okay, now we're gonna sit and we're gonna read everyone's feedback and then get a bigger picture of the candidate. And usually that one no will turn into a yes. Um, because it typically doesn't go the other way. This one went the other way. And it's because everyone started talking themselves out of this particular candidate saying, well, we don't think that this candidate has enough experience in uh, digging for data and diving deep and using data to relay insights. And then I, I, I said, oh, excuse me, uh, you do see on this candidate resume that they have a certificate from the Wharton School of Business that literally says Ooh, yeah. business insights, yeah. how to use data to transform into business, you know, whatever. So yeah. they're like, oh, okay, but I didn't see that in her interview. I'm like, well, you, you see this on her resume. And she, like, it, she's a principal director at a very, very big company. But she, that, she wasn't happened. prepared. She didn't come prepared yeah. for this. 
Right. Well, she was she was prepared. The thing is, is that these interviews of these companies sometimes, at least the one that this one went through, is a six hour long process. So you're interviewing oh. with five five different people, but over with an hour each one. So you you can be prepared um, and, and try to give the much data as you can. The problem is, is that uh, as much as we want to say the interview process is foolproof and doesn't have enough bias in it, mm-hmm. uh, I find that it still does. I find that if I were to take out one interviewer and replace it with a different interviewer, the panel would have gone a different way. Sometimes, because mm-hmm. people usually flex. So this candidate, we're going to hire her, but just not for the role that she was originally interviewing for. So it's still a good outcome. Uh, happy for that but i say all that to say is that nowadays in recruiting we want to be candidate advocates um as much as possible because it's about building trust and not being gatekeepers and um you know mm-hmm. the, the best part about my job is that i get to call people and tell them that well, i'm gonna hire you like you get a job yeah you get your dream job and all yeah. that so it's uh pretty rewarding so you i i know you mentioned just for a second that diversity thing um mm-hmm. how have you noticed a difference over the past few years with the social changes that have been going on? Or is I it have. kind of just that thing people talk about, but behind closed doors, it's still. Right. It, it, it depends on the company. I can say that the companies <laughs> that I have worked for, they, it, it's a, it's a really big deal. And I'll tell you how much of a big deal it is. Um, one company that I work for, not only were we looking for diverse candidates, we also wanted uh, to have diversity on our interview panel. So one thing that I have on my interviews is that there must be at least one woman on this five-person panel, and there must be at least one person of color on this on this on this uh, five-person panel. So, so when I say person of color, and this and this obviously depends, because when I think about diversity, I'm thinking about diversity um, for each of my organizations that I support. There may be one mm-hmm. organization that I support that there's mostly American, um, you know, WASP uh, type of people. So an Asian person would fit that demographic that I'm looking for as far as diversity, where there may be teams that are a little, a little bit more heavy on the East Asian, where and mostly men, where a woman of color might be uh, able to bring in uh, some diversity and eliminate groupthink on that team as well. Um, so uh, in the interview process, we're looking for diversity, um, not only amongst our candidates, and we strive to make that process uh, better because it, it makes it easier when you feel that you can recognize yourself amongst the interviewers. It, it makes the interview process a little bit more uh, comfortable, I think. So I do think that some companies do make it a priority. Other companies mm-hmm. do it as, as, as just lip service, I think. And you have to be careful. There are some people now um, more so, especially now because of the great resignation um, and how these people are, how people are trying to transition mm-hmm. into, into, into different fields. I've seen how there are some people who are quote unquote recruiters or career coaches that are taking advantage mm-hmm. of these people, charging them. Yeah. There's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, do you think um, when companies, whether it's yours or just in general, now with all these social changes over the past you know few years where things have really changed a lot do you think they're intentionally now looking for more diverse just to fit the hey we're diverse or do you think they're actually looking at um like people of color or women in a different way because of social change if that makes sense like right I would probably say, again, I think it depends on companies. And I, mm-hmm. I would use the analogy of, of cosmetics to, to, to show you that. So right now, uh, one of the, the most uh, value, uh, highly valued uh, cosmetic brands right now is Rihanna's brand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we know that she's like, a, I can't remember, a billionaire or something she's like a, that. She's what, a force there? of nature. She's a right. Force of nature. <laughs> she is. She is. Uh, but there's a there's a reason for that. I think now it was it was easier. I think back in maybe the the 1960s or 70s to rely on one demographic to help you reach your bottom line goals and to bring you the profit. I think now mm-hmm. it's much more difficult to do that because we have become less um, 
we become we as much as we have differences we are also more i think in some ways homogenized we we are a group of people as a whole first mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time we do have differences in, in cultures and things like that so you can't rely on just one demographic to bring you your bottom line and bring you the profits that you look for um that you could mm -hmm. have done back in the 80s or 70s now you need people in there who can tell you something that you can't tell yourself and that and that's what the whole thing about diversity and having diverse candidates means it allows you to get a perspective that you would have never thought of by yourself because oh, it's yeah. not your experience um and there are some companies that are actively trying to do that um because they know that the more perspectives they have the more insight it's like data points it's like facebook for example the more data mm -hmm. points you have about all these different people the more you can use that to drive your sales to drive your profits and all that so that's valuable to companies that's a commodity to some companies there are some companies that maybe are not as genuine about their intentions of doing having more diversity it's more about you know trying to sort of be on this uh uh this dei uh train that has been going on for the past couple of years where i'm a diversity equity and inclusion specialist or or whatever um uh some of it's lip service and some of some companies are doing it uh genuinely yeah okay um so not i know we're getting kind of we're getting a little political here so i'm sorry about that <laughs> just yeah just uh so somebody told me the other day and i i don't i want to get your perspective on this because mm -hmm. it's kind of an interesting thing i don't necessarily agree with it but it is kind of an interesting thing to talk about so obviously for the past you know forever <laughs> white males have been you know dominating everything and mm -hmm. um you know that's no secret to anyone who's decent human um right. do you do you think that's kind of flipped now not in a bad way just do you think it's mm -hmm. kind of flipped and now um it's more i don't mean in terms of domination like you know um i just mean in terms of what um companies are looking for mm, i know that gotcha. kind of goes off the company i or the question i asked earlier right but, um whereas it used to be you know oh if you're not a white male you're screwed do you think um and I don't feel this way, but do you think mm. that now it's kind of flipped and, um, you know, now it's just like, oh, if if you're a white guy, you're screwed. Obviously, you're not. Right. I'm just right. bringing this up to... as conversation. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say, today was great. Yeah, I don't want to sound like a piece of shit. Yeah, I don't want to sound like a piece of shit. I just mean, like, do you think now <laughs> it's late. going Too on late. to the future? Yeah, I know. Right. right. I know. Um, it's just another point of view that somebody brought up the other day. Like, right. do you think it's going to get a point that was not me where, either, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was not John. I would um, never suggest that. It's just, Oh, I don't either. I'm just, yeah, uh, I know. I'm just oh, you're curious. playing devil's advocate. I get yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. Devil's advocate for this guy's opinion on, yeah, do you right. think eventually it will get to the point to where, um, the, the white male is disadvantaged. I don't feel this way. I'm just curious as right, to right. this perspective. Gotcha. I will say that I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think mm -hmm. if anything is going to be, it's going to equal itself out. And what I mean yeah. by that is that there are so there's so many things that happen, and this is why I'm such an advocate of transparency. Uh, mm -hmm. I always get candidates that the night candidates, people just reach out to me on LinkedIn saying I applied for this job and no one's gotten back to me. Like, what's going on? And there's so much behind the scenes that 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 applicants don't know um, yeah. about, about different processes, and it makes it seem like oh maybe someone's ignoring you when they're really not. Um, it could just be the you know that they're busy or there's so many applications to get through. Um, and this is where I was talking about before where there's room for people to go in there and scam people saying i'll pay me six hundred dollars to do your resume i'll make it ats quote unquote compatible so that mm -hmm. your resume shoots up to the top of the the search result which is not a thing that happens that's like completely false oh but, man uh, now we know the scam <laughs> yeah that would have been what to watch out for. yeah <laughs> so, yeah and i um, i agree with you i think it'll eventually even out a little bit i mean well it's kind of oh go like ahead right now, I, yeah Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, I was listening to someone on, on a different podcast. They were talking about the, like, the, after the end of, of, of apartheid in South Africa, 
Nelson Mandela actually sat down with with the people who oppressed him, like put him in prison, and because he knew he had to make the nation work for everyone, right. it, it had to be equitable for everybody, not just like now we're in charge and like you know that didn't happen there. Right. And I think that I don't see that happening in the workplace. I'm also not a recruiter though; I don't have the inside track. Me and Ben don't mm-hmm. know. Oh, we we just have our small part of the company that we work for, so we don't know what's really going on. But I imagine. There's, I I hope that there's some cool heads in charge that are not like. I hope it's it's that's not the case, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I and what I mean by ca- equal up is like right now, it's like playing catch up. I don't yeah. think right now that we're mm-hmm. in a space where where white men are disadvantaged in any way. Uh, mm-hmm. when it comes oh, to definitely, yeah. because not at all. Yeah, like yeah. for example, I can, I can give you my numbers right here. I know that for the last quarter, that forty-seven percent of the people that I recruited and brought to onsite were women, and thirty-nine point five percent of them were uh, people of color. Uh, mm. So even with that statistic, it's still ter- even with that. And that's not even trying half. to find people. I'm still not even half. Yeah. I'm still not mm-hmm. even a half of what it should be. Um, definitely an improvement. Which right, is it's awesome. Improved, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an improvement, but I'm not yeah. even half, and that's me actively trying to find these candidates to bring to the process. And then that's the other. So that's the other part of it, where I say that it has to be that as a recruiter, you also have to be a candidate advocate. I remember a mm-hmm. few, one of the first roles that I did um, at this company I started working at last year. I remember it was a program manager role, and they. And I remember speaking with the candidate multiple times before the interview. She was a woman of color. She was brilliant. Uh, she worked for some other uh, top uh, co- uh, company in the world, not in the tech space, but in other, in other spaces. And I just knew she was going to do well. And I remember when we went to the debrief, the problem that they had with her um, is that she was not an mm-hmm. asshole. They needed oh, someone mm-hmm. who's going to be an asshole, who's going to be a jerk in this role. And they did um, not see that in her interview. And I'm, I'm thinking, first of all, Again, that leans more male than I think it was female. Anyway, what type of person is going to come off as an asshole in an interview? Uh, maybe someone who's yeah. overly confident, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But who's going to come yeah. off as an asshole? But they were looking for that sort of grit and that sort of uh, her being able that to push That sternness people. and right. aggression, yeah. Exactly. And that's the key word, aggression. Now, what yeah. is it that Black women are always trying not to come across as? Oh, yeah. Black women. Yeah. yeah. So why oh, would yeah. she show aggression in, a, in an interview process? If you told her that's what you wanted to see, trust me, she's from New York. She's from the Bronx. She can show you <laughs> yeah, aggression. She, I'm sure she can no throw problem. it down. She can take <laughs> right. those earrings off, then. Take the earrings yeah, off. exactly. You take them off. Yeah, throw yeah. down. Um, so you, you, said, you said 47%, correct? Right. Was the other 53% strictly like white male? Uh, well, so 47% was, uh, was women. So this would have been black women. And, and this is, again, self-identified. So some of the people, this mm. is only if they identified themselves when we took out a survey and asked them what mm. their demographic is. If they don't self-identify, we don't know. But uh, okay. from the ones who identified, 47% uh, were women uh, of any race. Uh, thirty, uh, thirty-nine point five percent were uh, were people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so men and women, people, and, and, and at this company, people of color means black, Latino, or Native American. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So we're look. So with that being said, so if we just look at the people of color demographic. That means mm-hmm. that forty point five, no, sixty, sixty-one point five percent were non-people of color. So that could have been men, men and women. Okay. Okay. There's definitely an improvement on the other end, though. So that's awesome. Right. Right. So that's why I think it's more about catching up because the other thing about recruiting and and these things about getting these jobs, there are a lot of jobs that um, people get not because they directly apply, but because someone Mm -hmm. put in a word for them. I had someone, I got a resume sent down to me from. Some other person, I didn't even know the person, but like, hey, this person's looking for a job at Amazon. I see you're recruiting for them. This would be a great job for them. And it, it was a white guy. Um, and so I went to check out his LinkedIn. And, uh, but yeah, he had someone advocating for him at the company and sending his resume around to people because they used to be for fraternity brothers or something like the that. The network. Or the yeah, right. Yeah. 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 The network. That's what it's about sometimes. Nepotism. That, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's not always it's not a, always a strictly merit thing. So like we have recruiters mm-hmm. who specifically, and I'm not one of them, even though I make it a priority in my in my my uh, sourcing. I'm not a diversity recruiter. We have people whose jobs are specifically to find diverse candidates. I find all types of candidates, but I focus on diversity being a priority. But at the same time, mm-hmm. I'm also trying to find the, the right fit for the, for the teams that I support. So I think it's more about. It catching up and it being more equitable versus it being so uh, right now uh, leaning towards more one side than the other. Gotcha. Yeah, so, I don't think it ever, yeah, it'll ever be that 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 white men would be disadvantaged for any job. I, I, oh, the yeah. thing about it is, illegally speaking, you can't do that. So <laughs> you right. even you know, so there's unconscious bias that happens with people of color. If you see an Asian uh, Asian name, for example, or a name that sounds a little bit more African or something like that, there's this unconscious bias in some people to ignore those resumes um, and not give them consideration. Whereas you see someone mm-hmm. like like Todd. Todd Sturgenberger, like that sounds like a, okay, guy. Let's go interview him. Versus if you see someone like Katanji Brown, right? you're like, oh, there you, <laughs> you know, yeah. So there, there's, there's lots of uh, points in the process of recruiting and hiring and interviewing someone where biases can creep in, and it's our job to remove those as much as possible to allow for it to become more equitable amongst people. Yeah. That's, honestly, that's why okay. my name is Courtney. Yeah. I asked my mom when I was younger, why did she name me Courtney? And she said, one, because I have a twin sister whose name starts with a C as well. But um, it used to be Cottrell. And she changed it because she thought that that would sound more black than white. Um, and she didn't want me to have those types of experiences. Oh, so, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> I know we we kind of gone on a lot longer than we planned. I'm sorry about that. But um, to to wrap this up, I know you love cooking in mm, culinary yes. and all that. So, yes. what is your favorite thing to make? Oh, that's such a difficult question to answer. It really or top three. My, okay, so it depends <laughs> on my mood. I would probably say. Uh, one of my favorite things to make would be tong bao, um, which is essentially this uh, b- uh, this balza, or how do, you, how do you say it in English? Uh, a bun. Um, uh, it's kind of a dumpling, but it's really mm-hmm. big, but it has soup inside of it. Ooh. So when you when you bite into it, you have like the normal dumpling, um, um, uh, Nishan, the normal dumpling, uh, like filling. Like but in addition to that, yeah, yeah. But in addition to that, you have this soup that's really good and refreshing. Um, I learned oh, how to make that wow. in China. That's one of my favorite things to make. Now, um, if I amazing, I, I can <laughs> cook like a child. Will I be able to make this for my family? Is it a hard? Oh, it, no, no, no! It's actually super simple. All you have to do is to make a then. soup that okay. it can sort of jellify. So whether it's using gelatin oh, yeah. or has a, or for example, using uh, lots of uh, um, uh, like chicken bones or beef bones, cause it has that gelatin, mm-hmm. gelatin uh, inside of it. You basically yeah. make it and then let it cool down so that it, it jellifies and you just stuff that into your bun. And then That's as awesome. you cook it, it will liquefy and turn back into soup. Oh, that sounds uh-huh. so good. So Ben, we need to put get these recipes and, and uh, post them. Yes. I'm definitely <laughs> trying this out. I'm trying this out. Um, so what's what's your second? What would you say is your second? Uh, second, uh, probably, oh, Lord. Uh, second. Uh, I don't even, I don't know. It's so it's so difficult because I make so many different things. I, I, I'll probably say the dishes that I, I, and I don't have names for them because like, my mom made them up. Like hamburger casserole is one that comes to mind. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever had hamburger casserole, but that's what we call it. Um, oh yeah. Basically, mm-hmm. basically it's a hamburger like in a in a in a casserole dish, but without the bread. That's a good. Uh, that's a good comfort food for me. It is. Yeah. yeah. So th- those foods that I can just make from memory and not even think about it, just like sort of turn my brain off and just go through the most stuff I've done it so many times. Those are probably the most comforting things to make. Um, but I also get excited learning new recipes and mixing them together mm-hmm. because of my traveling and all of that. Um, I don't know if, you, if you've ever seen, there's a video, there's a girl who does these videos on YouTube who she will go through the top um, 
uh, comfort foods in um, across the world or the top afternoon snacks across the world. She went through this one where like top food for rainy days across the world. And it was always, it was all this different version of chicken noodle soup that you would eat with you were sick. And I noticed that one of the chicken noodle soups that she made, uh, that she uh, identified, I think it was made in, 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 in Indonesia. It looks so good. And then, so I, I take these different recipes and I sort of merge them together with other recipes to create new flavors. And that's what I like is sort of the exploration and learning about new seeds and new type of spices. There are certain spices in China that I cannot get in America, which does not make the dish the same. I mean, I mean, honestly, if you ever get an opportunity, please go to China itself and eat the food there. You will never go to Panda Express for the rest of your oh, life. Oh, I want to go to China. That's good. We'll have to bring Courtney along so he can show us all oh, the good spots. He can translate a, for us too when we get I there. will take you yes. on a food tour that you've never seen in your life. Oh, I'm oh ready. My God. I'm game. I'm, that would be great. I'm also on YouTube right now looking at all these recipes for rainy days. Yeah. It looks delicious. It's, it's yeah. really good. But yes, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I could honestly keep talking for hours and hours. Um, but this has been amazing um john what do you think what do you think was this well worth your hour of time oh it was it was <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm telling you uh you're a super interesting guy and uh and 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 just i think you're doing some great work too i, I love what i'm hearing and uh and yeah, you've got two. You've got at least one movie and one Netflix uh, miniseries for <laughs> sure, for sure. And then maybe maybe a couple reboots and spinoffs. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Hollywood <laughs> loves to do that. So, but thank yeah. you a million. Thanks a million though, for real. It's no been a, it's been no a problem. Yeah. No problem. Thank, thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. You guys are amazing. Oh man. Oh, absolutely. And I will definitely. Uh, I'll send you a message later and, and get some recipes from you. Yes. Oh, that's, for sure. That's, that's what I want to do now. I'm ready. To, I, I've been but, doing a lot of the cooking at the house, so I can't wait to try some of these things. That I when you get those recipes, Ben. Yeah, for sure. Yes, for sure, for sure. But yeah, so thank you, Courtney, so much. Um, and I will definitely uh, talk to you, talk to you later about all this stuff. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. It's been all great. Right. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. See ya.